hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come to you. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The word of the Lord. What did you want to be when you were growing up? I remember what I wanted to be. I had every intention of being bivocational. I wanted to be a missionary to Africa while also playing in the NFL for the Miami Dolphins. I obviously felt a call to suffer at a young age in both counts. I had it all planned out. I'd be a missionary in the off season and I'd play in Miami because it offered the shortest flight to Africa. I also remember sitting in my youth group when I was young and realizing what I did not want to be when I grew up. And he said, hey, maybe some of you are called to be pastors. And I remember thinking to myself, I'd rather die than be a pastor. That sounds like the worst job in the world. I also remember when I was young, my hopes and dreams were a little bit different than being a missionary and playing in the NFL. I was with my mom and dad, and my mom said, Z, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be an insurance salesman. And that's because my dad was an insurance salesman, and I wanted to be like my dad. What do you want to be when you grow up? We think of that question as one that's fit and suitable for a kindergarten class, not adults. But it's actually more relevant to our lives now than it ever was before. And the way you answer that question isn't actually any different now than it would have been when you were a child. Sure, you understand more of the world. You understand your limitations and that you're 5'10", 165 pounds and have no business playing in the NFL. You recognize that reality sets in. And what you want to be changes. What you want to be grows in different ways over time. But in the end, the way you answer that question comes from the same source. You answer it by based on what you try to emulate is based on what you value. You imitate what you want to be. You try to copy what's important to you. You know, if you look at our culture, we're sold ads all the time. And think about all the lifestyle brands that are thrown at you. All the products, all the diets, all the ways that you can look and live and feel. And look at our shows that present how easy it is to have a perfectly decorated home, all these easy DIY projects to have the home of your dreams while also having all the free time in the world to spend with your smiling children, have enough date nights with your spouse, and even enough time to write a cookbook in your spare time. What you want to be is easy. 
We all want to be something tomorrow that we are not today. And we're offered all sorts of things to copy and to imitate because you live in a world that has a marketing empire that knows we all want to be something when we grow up. If we're going to look at discipleship today, and it's going to ask you that same question. What do you want to be? The question of discipleship asks you, are you ready to give up something old and become something new? Do you want to be fishermen or do you want to be fishers of men? Do you want to be a tax collector or do you want to be something altogether different? What do you want to be? And the cost of discipleship and the call of discipleship is really, it's kind of lost in our modern context because it's really easy to fall into the trap of watering it down and thinking that discipleship is just giving assent or agreeing with a set of teaching. And so are you a disciple of Jesus? We say, yes, I agree with his teaching. Discipleship is merely deciding whose side are you on. Do you agree or disagree with Jesus' school of thought about life and this and that? But that's not discipleship. If all we do is treat Jesus as, you know, a good teacher, then we've really made him no different than a theoretical physicist that has a theory about the cosmos and how the reality about the way that things are, but in the end, it doesn't affect your life, and you certainly aren't trying to be like that person. And it doesn't have any bearing on what you do throughout all your decisions of life and who you become. It's just an idea. And the essence of discipleship in the Bible is much different. It's not just learning the teaching. It's learning to become like the teacher. Who they are shapes who you are. What they do is what you do. If you can boil all of Jesus' teaching down, you could essentially describe it as this. Jesus' teaching is teaching you how to be like him. Discipleship asks you the question, do you want to be like Jesus? And if you don't want to be like Jesus, then discipleship stops dead in its tracks. And where discipleship stops dead in its tracks, then faith runs cold. And up until this point in the book of Philippians, Paul's laid out this call of discipleship in a number of different ways. He said, for me to live is Christ. He said that his purpose is bound up in proclaiming the name of Christ, no matter what. Whether he's out in front of a crowd or he's in prison. He said that we're called to live a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. He said that we together are called to have the mindset of Christ himself. That in humility, we would consider one another more significant than ourselves by looking out for the interests of one another more than our own. And if you looked at today's passage, he kind of stops talking about these things. This passage takes a different tone today. It's very simple. There's no heavy theology being done here. And a lot of times this passage is skipped over in a sermon series because it just seems like Paul's opening up his calendar, talking about what he wants to do, his plans for the future, wants to send him Timothy, wants to send him Epaphroditus, that's boring, let's go on. But I think there's more here than just that. This passage is an opportunity to see, you know, effectively behind the veil, because what makes this passage unique is that it gives us a chance to, to see how Paul's relationships, how his own relationships are shaped by the mind of Christ. He's been talking about it, spent two, and a half, two chapters showing what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be like him, pouring out yourself for one another. So how does he embody it? What does that look like for him? You know, these three men, these are leaders in the church. So how does Christ shape their relationships? 
How does Christ shape his relationship with Timothy and Epaphroditus? How do they look out for the needs, interests, and welfare of one another? It's important to see that in action, is it not? So think about this passage this way. A church is only as strong as its staff meeting. A church is only as strong as its session meeting. You could have a beautiful, glitzy, awesome worship service each and every Sunday. But if during the week you get to see what really goes on and the relationships amongst the leadership are selfish, backbiting, power-hungry, stepping over one another, then all you've got is a rotten piece of wood with a fresh coat of paint. What's presented to you isn't really what lies behind the veil. And so in this passage, it's important because it offers us a window into how Christ shaped Paul's relationships with others. It's an opportunity to actually see for him what it looked like in a small way to look out for the interests of one another. So what do we see? Well, the first thing we see is how Paul starts off by talking the way he talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Look at how encouraging he is. Look at how much he builds them up. Look at how much he affirms the work of Christ in them. He says about Timothy, For I have no one like him who will genuinely... Be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth. And then he says about Epaphroditus, he says that he's a brother, he's a fellow worker, he's a fellow soldier, he's a messenger, he's a minister to Paul's own needs. He tells the Philippians that they should receive Epaphroditus with all joy and that they should honor him when they receive him because he almost died for the work of Christ. Notice how genuine Paul's affection is, how he goes above and beyond to celebrate them, to encourage them, because they would have heard that letter read out to the entire Philippian church because they're the ones that are carrying it to them. Look at how much he goes above and beyond to celebrate Christ's work in them. Who doesn't want to be a part of a community like that? Who doesn't want to have relationships in this church just like that? Who doesn't want to be seen? Who doesn't want to be noticed for what Christ is doing in them? Who doesn't want to be encouraged and loved? If you don't, then you have no business in the church because it's what we're called to be. And so how do these relationships get to this place? How do these relationships become to this point with these three men? Well, it was through discipleship. It was through the three of them having a relationship that was built on discipleship. If you look in verse 22, Paul describes Timothy when he says this. He says, as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. As a son with a father. He's using the language of apprenticeship, which essentially is lost to us in our day. Because in their day, the son would learn the family business by working closely with the father so that he could be prepared, ready, and equipped to take over when the time came. So Paul is saying that Timothy's growth and proven worth is a product of this close relationship that he had with Paul and their constant service, side by side together, year after year after year. This is a picture of discipleship. We know this, right? We know that Paul discipled Timothy. If you've been in church long enough, you've heard that. And we easily think, you know, that's, well, they kind of had a special relationship. And we can think of it as a special case. 
And we think that this type of relationship is really specific just to the two of them. But it's really not the case. If you look at throughout the scriptures, you see this type of relationship over and over and over again all throughout the Bible. You have Moses and Joshua. You have David and Nathan, Elijah and Elisha. You have Peter and Mark, Paul and Timothy. You have Jesus and his disciples. And your first instance might be, well, yeah, but those are special characters called to do special things at special times. I'll give you that. We can also look at it a different way and recognize this. That the closer you get to God throughout the Bible, the closer you get to God, you will find two people following Jesus together. The closer you get to God, you will find people following him side by side. The closer you get to God, you find relationships of discipleship. And you have to think, why is that? Well, I think there's you know, a multitude of reasons. And we could do a whole sermon series on discipleship, and this week I decided that we probably should. But specifically, if we look at it in context of what Paul has already been talking about, discipleship is an essential way that we look out for the deepest interests of one another. What greater way to be like Jesus than to be concerned for the spiritual welfare of another? What greater way to be like Jesus than to be concerned about building up another person's faith? And we really have to ask ourselves the question, how can we even claim to try to be like Jesus if we don't actually care for the spiritual concerns of another person? So you see this relationship of discipleship all over again throughout the scriptures that the closer we move towards God, he provides a system in which we can become like him by becoming someone that cares about the concerns of the person walking next to us. You don't have to be concerned about every person's spiritual welfare in this room. You can't. But we can all participate in a way that cares about the concerns of one another, to encourage one another, to help be there when someone needs to be challenged, exhorted, when someone needs help, to be a community that cares deeply for one another. And you know, we, we live in a context in which we don't have a ton of material need. And so it's the only way that we look at caring about the interests of one another is just taking a meal, which we do plenty of and we do amazing work in that regard. But is that all that Paul is talking about? No. Discipleship is how we move towards being a deeper community. How we move towards being a deeper community that you know, doesn't just take someone dinner, but it's a way that we can walk side by side with one another, caring for one another's spiritual needs. And in that, we become more like Jesus. When was the last time you were asked by someone, how is your faith? Like, how are you and Jesus doing right now? Have you guys talked in a while? How are you doing? Are you encouraged? Are you beaten down? When's the last time you asked somebody, how's your faith? How's it going? Is that not the most fundamental part of any conversation we should ultimately have? Why would we not regularly be talking about these things? And I'd love for us as a church to move in this direction, where discipleship happens naturally for us to be a relational church where our relationships are rooted in our shared pursuit of Jesus Christ and taking responsibility one for another to come alongside and encourage and equip. 
And it's so important that we do that because discipleship chips away at some of the very real obstacles that we naturally put up to our own spiritual growth. Discipleship's going to chip away at your sense of independence and autonomy because we are not taught in our culture to value wisdom. We're not taught in our culture to sit with someone and value their life experience, to learn from their successes, to learn from their failures. Instead, going your own way, doing your own thing, following your truth is treated as a virtue. And all that is is a recipe to learn the hard lesson. It also chips away at our pride because discipleship is that opportunity to humble ourselves and be willing to just take off our armor for a second and go to someone and ask for help and to recognize that it's okay to be seen as somebody that doesn't have it all together. But it also chips away at our pride for somebody that would say, you know, I don't, I don't think I have anything to offer anybody else. You know, who am I? I'm no spiritual giant. But in the end, that just stems out of a, a line of thinking that assumes that discipleship is about solving somebody's problems or having all the answers whenever they have questions. But discipleship is far simpler than that. It's a willingness to give what you have for the spiritual benefit of another. It's a willingness to let the work of Christ in you feed the work of Christ in another person. And if you look at the way Paul talks about Timothy elsewhere, he talks about this relationship. It's not Timothy just sitting at his feet taking notes. It's them struggling together, suffering together, laboring together, praying together, and serving alongside one another. They are moving towards Jesus together. You know, what we see with Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus, this relationship that they have is nothing short of what we could see here amongst ourselves. You know, where Paul talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus in such an encouraging way out of his genuine love and care for them, and he builds them up. And where Timothy, by virtue of his relationship with Paul, becomes so equipped and so ready and so shaped that he actually is ready to now become a benefit and a blessing to an entire church. And then you have Epaphroditus, who learned under Paul in Philippi, being willing to travel 800 miles to Rome to meet the needs of the one who discipled him whenever he was in need. You know, discipleship changed the lives of all three of these men. Being in a a community that disciples one another is how we move towards a deeper community that cares for the deepest realities of one another. And when we choose to be a community that disciples one another, that's a community that Jesus uses to bring about real life change. And discipleship certainly changed my life. You know, God writes our stories but he also does it in a way that brings people along at the right place and the right time. There is one man in particular that has just, just about the most influential person in my life, second to my dad. His name's Scott Boyd. Scott was uh, my best friend's dad in college. He owned an engineering firm, and whenever I graduated from engineering school, he offered me a job, and so I went to work for him for a few years. And we already knew each other, obviously, but we grew clue, grew grew close during that time. He was always sharing his faith, always talking about it, always talking about what Jesus was teaching him. He's always talking about his wife and the way that he was struggling to love her better. He struggled to love in a way that was sacrificial and he was open about it. He's probably one of the most vulnerable men I've ever met. He would just share his mistakes because he didn't care what you thought. And he would just tell you where he failed. He'd be honest. 
And you talk about God's grace all the time, like a broken record. And he did not uh, waste words. Scott was not a guy that you wondered what he was thinking, because he was going to tell you. And in July of 2008, I needed that. I was sitting in his office, and I was at a low point. And little did I know at that time, it's probably the biggest crossroads in my life because of Melissa. Up until this time, while I worked for Scott, I met Melissa. She couldn't stay away. We dated for five months. And uh, she told me this week, as a result of having two children, she can't remember this stuff very well, so now is a perfect time to tell this story. So she, uh, I met her, and we dated for five months, and she, uh, uh, she broke up with me, and then a week later, she moved to China for a year. And I'd like to think that it wasn't to get away from me, but she went to be uh, a missionary in Beijing with Crusade. And it was devastating, and Scott walked with me through all of that. He was there for me. And during this time, you know, Melissa and I would kind of talk, and then we'd break things off, and then we'd be like, we need to just go our separate ways, and then we'd kind of talk, and we just kind of danced around each other for about 10 months. And finally, I went to her, and I just typed her up an email across the world, and I said, either you and I are going to do this together, or we're going to go apart. I said, we need to decide. A few days later, she called me up, and she said, when I get back next month, I'm willing to see where this goes. And I said, great. I had, I had plans to go to seminary and to start a career in ministry. Now she's coming home, willing to start a relationship again, and I was ready. So when she got home, we went to a concert in Kansas City. Had a great time. And then on the way home, it was late. She said, hey, there's something I have to tell you. She said, I took a job in Dallas, and I'm, I'm moving next month, or I'm moving at the end of the year. And I said, you didn't think to tell me that. When, when did you make that decision? She said, I made it two months ago. I said, you made it, two, about this time I'm going 90 miles an hour. I said, You've, you, you decided that two months ago and you didn't think to tell me that you were moving to Dallas. You know, I, I had plans to go to seminary, you knew that, and you didn't tell me this. I was like, how could you do this to me? Like, why would you lead me on in this way? And so by the time we got back to her apartment, I walked her up to her door and I said, I'm walking away. I said, I'm done. We're going in two completely different directions. And I literally just walked away, back to my car, and I went home. The next day, I show up in Scott's office. He said, how'd it go? And I said, it was terrible. And I unloaded on Scott. I said, I can't believe she did this to me. I can't believe that she wouldn't be honest about it. I gave a year and a half of my life to pursuing her, blah, 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 going on and on and on and on and on and on. And Scott just sat there and he listened. And I got done talking, and we just sat there in silence for a second, and he just, he goes, Zach, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and he goes, all I hear is just a scared man. I just hear fear. He goes, uh, excuse me. He goes, uh, he said, you're just afraid. You know, you, you had an idea. 
of how you thought life would go. It didn't go that way. He said, Melissa's not allowed to make plans, but you are. He said, did you ever stop and pray about it yet? Have you asked God what he thinks? You ever consider the possibility he's doing something new in you? He said, remember the words of Teddy Roosevelt, son? And I said, I have no idea what Teddy Roosevelt said, Scott. And he said, in the end, he said, glory's found on the battlefield, son. It's not found in the cheap seats, wishing that you had it and crying that you don't. And I said, you're crying in the cheap seats, Scott. I don't, at this point, I have no idea what to say. And over the next hour, he sat there and he encouraged me and he loved me. And by the time I left, he said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go back to your office. You're going to call Melissa. You're going to tell her you were an idiot. And you're going to pray that she takes you back. And so I walked out of his office, made the call, and bam, we have two kids. (laughs) With some steps along the way. You know, Scott's willingness to be there for me was at the biggest moment of my life. And he didn't know that. He was there at a crossroads for me in a way that I, I didn't even know. But what he said was just his willingness to be there, to say what I needed to hear. And he was willing to pursue my welfare at his own cost because he knew he was sending me away. After all the time he'd spent with me, he'd have to go find somebody new and invest in them and train them for his job that he trained me to do and spent a lot of money investing in. And he never brought it up. He just encouraged me forward reminded me of who I am in Jesus. And he sent me on a life-changing journey because it led me to Melissa. It led me to Dallas. It led me to all sorts of other mentors. And it led me home to Rockwell Press. You know, God used Scott in a way that would change my life forever because he was willing to walk alongside me and love me every step of the way. And I texted him this morning at 6 a.m. hoping I would wake him up. And he just said, you know... In the end, discipleship's easy. It's just reminding each other of our relationship in Christ and our identity in him together. I'm glad I could do it for you. And now I get to do that for him as he struggles with his wife as she's going through pancreatic cancer. The discipler can now be the disciplee. You know, we have such a great opportunity to build these relationships here in our church. We are a three-generation church. It's pretty rare, a church our size. There's families that have three generations in them. We're blessed to have age diversity. At a time in which maybe you're an older part of this church and you feel like your years of service and influence have come and gone, maybe they're just beginning. Maybe they're just getting started. Because collectively, as a church, combined, we have centuries of following Jesus together. We have centuries of marriage experience, of learning to raise children, of knowledge, and wisdom of mistakes and successes. Why would we withhold that from one another? So here's my challenges to you this morning. First is to honestly ask yourself the question, have I been following Jesus alone? Is there anyone in your life? Is there anyone there to encourage you? To challenge you? You know, to hold up your arms when life gets hard for you? You know, Jesus has made it to where we don't have to do this alone. But discipleship is how you take him up on the offer. Are you willing? And secondly, I challenge you to go to someone and ask, 
if they would walk alongside you. Humble yourself and just ask for help. Maybe it's just as simple as saying, would you get coffee with me? Because I have no idea how to raise kids. You know, it wasn't modeled for me. I have no idea what I'm doing, and I'm at a place where I'm at wit's end. I need help. You seem like you've done this before, and you know a little bit more than I do. Please, SOS. Or maybe it's going to somebody and saying, I need accountability in my walk. I need the grace of having somebody to answer to. Or maybe you're the person that's actually in a good season. And you actually need to pour into someone else. Maybe you need to actually go to someone and say, could I walk with you? I choose to care about your spiritual welfare. I choose to know what you struggle with. To whatever degree you tell me. But I'm gonna, I want to be here for you. I want to be there. I want to be there tomorrow. I just want to see what Jesus could do between us. And in that, try and see if Jesus does not begin to give you his heart that he has towards that person in you. Where you learn to care for the needs of one another in a way that is sacrificial, that is encouraging, in a way that's life-changing. Do you have any idea how encouraging it would be to hear someone or to have someone come to you and say that? Say, I just choose you. And I'm going to walk with you. Because that's what Jesus does to us. But all of this comes down to a few simple questions. Are you willing to be used? Are you willing to allow the work of Christ in you to be a gift to someone else? And in the end, do we really want to be like Jesus? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the call of discipleship. We thank you for small passages like this that remind us of the necessity of discipleship in the life of the church and how you built your church through relationships just like this. We thank you that you did not leave us to go through this world alone, but you gave us one another and that your work in each other can be a gift that we can learn from one another, that together we make up the one body of Christ. Together we make up the arms, the legs, the hands, the feet of you, and that we can serve one another. Would you give us your heart towards the people sitting next to us and around us and in this room so that we might become more like you and see others become more like you as well? We're humbled by your sacrifice this morning that we get to eat and receive at this table. We ask that you'd meet us in it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.